The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so let us um, continue uh, with the Anapanasati Sutta. And uh, now we come to the very last part. Uh, and the last part of this sutta is about insight, really. Uh, this is about how to understand this process uh, and the various ways to look at it and contemplate it. Uh, so the sutta up to this point has been mostly about how to calm the mind uh, and how to achieve samadhi. Uh, so this is the uh, kind of samatha, if you like. Uh, and the next part, the four last steps, are about the insight. And sometimes uh, you would divide this up. The first part, you would say it is samatha, calming the mind, and you would say the last part is vipassana, uh, sometimes translated as insight, uh, but maybe clear seeing uh, is a better translation for that. And uh, But I think it is not really a very uh, good way of thinking of meditation practice, because in the suttas, these two words, samatha and vipassana, they always go together. So you always, whenever you have samatha, you also have vipassana, and when you have vipassana, you also have samatha. These are two qualities of the mind that go together. So whenever you uh, develop the mind in the right way, then these two both arise together. So what that means is that on the path that we have seen so far, uh, when you have samatha, there actually comes the clarity of the mind, the clear seeing uh, arises at the same time. Uh, yeah, and then whenever you have the clear seeing, uh, uh, then also the clarity must be there. Bec and the reason for that is simply that uh, the Buddhist path is one of reducing the defilements, uh, and when you reduce the defilements of the mind, uh, these two things happen. Uh, you become more calm, uh, and also you see things more clearly. Uh. So everything is really both, and it's not really, I think it's not really all that useful to divide it up in this way. It's more the emphasis, what we are looking at that is different. There's different ways of developing the mind. One of them is to contemplate what is happening, and one of them is to focus on an object like the breath. But both of them are actually samatha and vipassana practice. So um, let us look at this last part. And uh, so this is where the kind of the we develop more the wisdom in a more direct way by uh, uh, contemplating what has been happening by reflecting on it, uh, and this is what happens in the very last towards towards the end here. Uh. So this then is equivalent to the last uh, the last of the four uh, satipatthanas. This is the dhamma nupassana, uh, the contemplation of principles, uh, and this is then e equivalent to that. Uh. He trains thus. Uh, I shall breathe in contemplating impermanence. He trains thus, I shall breathe out contemplating impermanence. He trains thus, I shall breathe in contemplating fading away. He trains thus, I shall breathe out contemplating fading away. He trains thus, I shall breathe in contemplating cessation. He trains thus, I shall breathe out contemplating cessation. He trains thus, or you train thus, I shall breathe in contemplating relinquishment. Uh, you train thus, I shall breathe out contemplating uh, relinquishment. And uh, when you read that, again, it is not entirely clear what you're supposed to do. Uh, what are What is actually going on here? What does it mean? How do you contemplate the impermanence? Like a disembodied impermanence, it doesn't seem to refer to anything. What exactly is it that we're supposed to contemplate? 
And of course, what the most obvious thing that we're supposed to contemplate uh, is the process that we have just been through. Uh, you've been through a process, and that process may not necessarily include all the 12 steps before, but it very likely includes some of those steps. Yeah, you Maybe you have at least been watching the breath a little bit, or maybe you even have experienced some happiness and joy in your meditation. So part of this process, and once you have uh, achieved part of that process, you can use this contemplation at the very end uh, to contemplate that which you have been through. Uh, yeah, so that is what you're contemplating here. And the more profound the previous the process is, uh, the further it goes, uh, the more ability, the more powerful will, will be the contemplation at this particular point. Uh, so if you go all the way to um, liberation towards the very end there, uh, you have a very powerful ability to, uh, to get insight into these uh, various things that actually occur uh, during this process. Uh, so specifically, what is it that we contemplate as impermanent? Well, the things that we contemplate are the things that are impermanent in this process. Yeah, so as you are watching the breath, what, I, what is impermanent? Well, what is impermanent are all the things that are not the breath. Yeah, like the body, for example. Uh, uh, and specifically, of course, any sens sensory input uh, that is impermanent. It is actually gradually changing. It is moving. Uh, it is actually becoming less, moving towards fading away, which is the next factor here. Uh, yeah, you can see, you can feel that things are changeable. Things are moving in different directions. They're not stable. And that instability, in a sense, is what you are is the first kind of basis here for contemplation. So um, uh, impermanence means, you know, very often it is useful to think of impermanence in different ways. I, to, I don't like the word impermanence all that much. It doesn't mean all that much to me, but things like unreliable is a, is a nice word. Unreliable to me has more kind of emotional Impact uh, things are unreliable. It's, ooh, that's not so nice. Uh, things are impermanent. Okay, whatever. But unreliable. That's really bad. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so things are unreliable. They're not there. They're not steady. They're not something you can rely on in your life, like an unreliable friend or whatever it is. Uh, so you see the uh, you see the impermanence of this phenomena. Huh? Yeah, and. Um, body senses and then you can see the movement of the mind like the you know the the will if you like the doing activity you become more and more the observer huh? until the doing of the mind that movement of the mind also dies down the mind becomes very still and you see that in the meditation object the meditation object becomes very still that means the mind is still huh? yeah there's no movement there happening anymore huh? and so the will is dying down your ability to do is disappearing here huh? Uh, your fe certain feelings are disappearing, painful feelings are disappearing, and then the feelings are always transforming themselves, transform themselves from, um, uh, you know, from a certain type of happiness to a more subtle type of happiness, uh, and that transformation is also an aspect of impermanence uh, and fading away. Uh. So first of all, you see the impermanence of things, and impermanence is a bit like the waves on the ocean. Uh, yeah, things are just kind of changing all the time. Uh. But then you have fading away, which is a more powerful kind of impermanence. Uh, you literally see things gradually disappearing. Uh, yeah, the body becoming less and less prominent. Uh, the sensing becoming senses becoming less and less prominent. Uh, the defilements gradually disappearing, fading away. You can see the mind being purified as you go through this process. Uh, you look at the mind at the end, and you feel more 
at ease, you feel more peaceful, uh, you feel a bit more purified at the end of the meditation than you did at the beginning. Yeah? And sometimes you will see that in your meditation. You come out, you feel peaceful afterwards. Why is that? Well, in large part because there are less defilements in the mind. It's the defilements that agitate the mind. So you see these things disappearing, and the will again, gradually fading away as you go through this process. And fading away and may sound scary until again you notice uh, how it correlates with happiness in this process. The more things fade away, uh, the more good you feel, the more at ease you feel, the more relaxed you feel, the more whole you feel, the more complete, the more satisfied. All of these th things uh, come from fading away. Uh. And then, of course, there is the really big one, that is cessation, when things actually disappear completely. Uh. That is... Um, Impermanence really becoming powerful. It is the most powerful way of thinking about impermanence. Uh, things are really unreliable. Uh, they cease. Uh, and this happens mostly at the very last step when you liberate the mind. Uh, that is when cessation becomes particularly powerful. Uh, and cessation here means that not only does it disappear, uh, but it becomes inaccessible. Uh, you can no longer go there. Uh, and this is why it is can be bit concerning. Yeah? You, it gives rise to a bit of anxiety when you get to this point because you are literally no longer have access to your five senses and when you no longer have access to them it is as if you, they are kind of gone forever. That's what it feels a bit like and of course that can be a bit scary but at the same time you realize that all of this is a movement towards happiness, a movement towards completion and wholeness or whatever so actually it is just uh, uh, it is, there's no need for that uh, Anxiety, it's just uh, because you are so used to these things uh, that it is hard to let them go. Uh, it is kind of getting rid of, getting, overcoming very ancient habits uh, that we carry with us for so long. Uh, that is why it is hard to go to these particular places. Uh. And then, of course, that is where when your things cease, uh, yeah, all the way along here, not only do you understand impermanence and fading away and cessation, uh, but at the same time you also understand dukkha, Suffering, because as these things fade away, it's better, less suffering, more happiness. Yeah, so there must be dukkha, and when they cease completely, when you have no longer have access to these things, that is also when you understand non-self, anatta, and the reason is because if anything is self, it is always something that you can have access to, something you can control. If you can't control it, if you have no say over it, then by, very de by its very definition, it is non-self. It cannot be an inherent part of you if it is suddenly gone and there's no way of, of uh, uh, getting any, uh, doing anything with it. So all the three characteristics uh, that we are looking for, uh, that we're trying to get insight into in Buddhism, uh, are covered by these particular contemplations here. Uh, you're looking back on the process, seeing these things happening. Uh, yeah, it's a, very, it's a very natural thing, very straightforward. Uh, and you will already have some insight into that process already. You may not even realize you have that insight, but you will, because you will have seen some of these things happening here. Uh. So this is what insight is. It's very natural. You, you know, it's kind of, all of these terms sound a bit mystical when you're not used to this, but actually there's nothing mystical about them at all. Uh. And then you come to the very last one, which is relinquishment. Uh, so what is that? Well, what that is, is that as you see these things ceasing, you see that they are non-self, you see that they are 
suffering unsatisfactory, that you can't control them, they are unreliable. If you keep on watching them in that way, then eventually the desire for these things die down. The desire dies down because it is crazy madness to have desire for something which is suffering. Yeah, so if you're seeing that these things are a problem, uh, they are non-self, got nothing to do with you, then of course, you eventually the desire dies down uh, until the craving is completely gone. Uh, and that is when you relinquish these things. Relinquish means it's kind of the opposite of craving, uh, and you never really want them again. Uh, uh, you kind of just uh, off, off they go, uh, and they disappear. Uh. So that is the uh, kind of this process here that we are looking, looking to again uh, insight into. Uh. And... Uh, what this actually is, what is interesting about this, is that you know sometimes people ask questions like, what are the five khandas? This is kind of a very standard kind of question people ask. And it's a good question because you know you get this list, yeah? Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, and Vijnana. Yeah? Uh, form or materiality, uh, feelings, perceptions, uh, will, and consciousness, the five khandas. So what actually are they? Yeah, it's kind of we understand them as theoretical ideas, but what are they? And these, and that's a very important point. And the suttas often say that we should understand the arising and passing away of the five khandas to gain insight on the Buddhist path. Well, this is how you do it. Yeah, this process that you go through here, these th- things that we experience on the way towards stillness, these are precisely the five khandas. This is what we are experiencing here. Yeah, so this is it. This is what it means to get insight into the five khandhas. We've just been looking at it. It often seems so theoretical, but here it is in a very practical setting to know what's going on. This kind of ties everything together very nicely. So when you see the body fading away and you see the senses fading away, what is that? Well, that is the ending or the impermanence of the Rupa kanda, the form kanda, because this all has to do with the material things of the world, materiality, if you like. So you see the form kanda disappearing, yeah, being impermanent, being suffering because you understand you're much better off without it, being non-self because you can't have access to it anymore when you go into deep samadhi. You see the Vedana Kandana, the second one. You see how feelings, certain feelings disappear. All the worldly feelings disappear. And all you're left with are the spiritual feelings. The feelings that are the joy and happiness of meditation. And all the ordinary feelings of the world that relate to the five senses, they're all gone. Yeah, you don't have the, this kind of feeling anymore. Feeling, yeah? and, that, and this kind of tea drinking feeling, it's all, <laughs> it's all gone. Uh, so the worldly feelings are gone, uh, and what you have are the spiritual feelings. Uh, the painful feelings are gone, uh, all you have is happy feelings. Uh, and as you keep on practicing, even all the happy feelings will be gone, and all you have is equanimity, uh, yeah, neither pain nor pleasure. Uh, and when you get to that, you're even more happy. Uh. It's one of those conundrums of Buddhism, when you give up happy feelings, you're even more happy. It sounds, kind of a, sounds like an oxymoron, but actually uh, that is uh, how the path works. Uh. So you see the Vedana Kanda, yeah? This is how you understand its impermanence and the suffering of the Vedana. Then you have the Sanya. The Sanya Kanda is our perception of the world. Our perception of the world is getting more refined. The breath is becoming more and more refined. We give up the perception related to the five senses. Then you have left with the perception of the mind, which is just happiness and pleasure. That is changing to become more refined. There isn't any big difference here between perception and feeling. These are very closely related to each other. 
Uh, but all anything that you exp- your whole experience is becoming more refined. Uh, that means that your perception of reality is changing. Uh, and again, you see this in terms of the uh, three characteristics. Uh, Sankara Kanda is all about the will, yeah, and you can see the will dying down as you go through this uh, until eventually you enter deep samadhi and will is completely gone. You're 100% focused on one object. Uh, there's nothing going on anymore. You cannot, and you, even if you wanted to do something else, you can't do it. Uh, will has disappeared. You are not will. And this is radical because we tend to identify so much with the doer. So many people are the doer in their lives. Yeah, I am the doer. And we delight in creativity. We delight in getting things done. We delight in uh, doing things. Yeah, we, and we feel alive when we do things. So many people identify with the doer. And I'm sure everyone here probably identifies with the doer, at least to some extent. Yeah, you finish that report. You do your research on mindfulness or whatever it is. And you feel happy about that. And it's natural that you should do that. But uh, we try to reduce that identity a little bit. And here you see that uh, through, um, through this process, that actually it is not you. It is a conditioned process, and it is a process that is suffering. Once you let go of it, you're far better off. Yeah? Doing is a nuisance, you, you actually start to realize. And then the last kanda is the vinyana kanda. And that is the hardest one to really see clearly because knowing of vinyana is close, very close to us, awareness. And, but again, this too, you can start to see the ceasing of vinyana because vinyana comes in different categories related to the six senses. And when certain senses disappear completely, then certain types of consciousness are cut off. And you start to realize that consciousness itself is something that is impermanent and can cease. Yeah, so this is how you start to get insight into the five khandas. So this is how the, this is this is the mystery of the five khandas, kind of at least a little bit resolved for you. Yeah, it is not as mysterious as it may sound. This is how insight occurs into these things. So uh, there you are. So this is what is ahead for you. This is all the uh, all the potential of this uh, beautiful anapanasati. Sutta, and then the Buddha rounds the things off by the very end there. Actually, it goes on for a lot longer than this, but uh, this is the most interesting part of it. But then it says, because this is how mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, so that it is of great fruit and great benefit. Yeah, so you become an arahant based on uh, mindfulness of breathing, so that's why it is of great fruit and great benefit. There's certainly no exaggeration there. And then, as you do that, then you, as I mentioned, you complete the four satipatthanas, get fulfilled and completed through this. And then when you fulfill the four satipatthanas, you fulfill the four, um, the seven factors of awakening, because that is a lot about samadhi practice. What is interesting is, is that if you look at the seven factors of awakening, I did mention them before, you will note that a lot of the seven factors of awakening are sort of included right here in the mindfulness of breathing. Yeah, it starts off by saying establishing mindfulness. That is equivalent to the sati sambhojanga, the awakening factor of mindfulness. Yeah, there at the very beginning. 
Then you have the Dhammavichaya Sambhojanga, which is not really mentioned here, but it's kind of included because it has to do with uh, uh, using that mindfulness to overcome uh, defilements and things. Uh, then you have the Virya Sambhojanga, which is the energy, and then the Piti Sambhojanga. Now here, the mindfulness of breathing has Piti in it. Uh, yeah, the Piti is there that gives you give rise to Piti, uh, and energy also arises as part of this practice. Uh, then we have the Pasadi Sambhujanga, which is not, again, not mentioned here directly, but you have this idea of calming things down all the way through this. Then you have the Samadhi Sambhujanga, and the, that is equivalent to the very end here, the Vimochayang Chittang, liberating the mind, that is when Samadhi is attained. Then you have the Upeka Sambhujanga, which is the Samadhi taken to its highest potential, they are the fourth jhana. So a lot of these factors of awakening are actually included in this process. So you can see how you actually fulfill those factors of awakening simply by watching the breath. And then from the factors of awakening, because the factors of awakening mean those things that lead to awakening, yeah, being vimutti and vidja vimutti, then as a consequence, it takes you all the way to the end, all the way to awakening, liberation, insight, knowledge, uh, and everything that you ever wanted in life, and actually more than you ever realized was possible. Uh, and that is what is so cool and so nice about this. Uh. So, uh, there you are. That is uh, the uh, four Satipatthanas uh, explained uh, through mindfulness of breathing. Uh, so, uh, this is what mindfulness of breathing can do for you. Yeah, it's pretty neat, isn't it? Uh, what, this simple little breath. And what is so nice about this is that the breath is such a natural thing. There's no hocus-pocus about this. There's nothing magical, nothing really weird. Uh, it's just following completely natural principles. Uh, and whether you are Buddhist or not doesn't really matter. The breath is still there, uh, and the experience will be exactly the same. Even if you don't really consider yourself a Buddhist, uh, it will, the experience will be exactly the same anyway if you're able to follow this in, the, in this particular way. Uh. So that is kind of, this is what is so nice about the uh, Buddhist teaching. It tends to be based on natural principles. Uh, and uh, that is, uh, uh, I think, a great advantage when you want to teach Buddhist uh, to the world, uh, Buddhism to the world. Uh. Anyway, so that is the four Satipatthanas. Now I want to have a look, start to look a little bit at the next set of these 37. Uh, and the next set are the four Idipadas. Uh, I'm going to look at these only in brief because they are uh, kind of uh, not explained very much in the suttas. They're quite a rare set and they're not as important, I think, as the other ones. But it's nice to get some idea what they are all about because that's kind of what this, uh, 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 what this is about. You have to look at them all, otherwise we're kind of uh, not fulfilling our uh, expectations here. So the four... Uh, foundations for spiritual power, the four bases for spiritual power is what comes up next here. And what I'm going to read out now is just the uh, standard explanation of these four spiritual powers uh, in, uh, in the suttas. This is taken from the Idipada Sangyutta. You will see the little SN there. SN being the Sangyutta Nikaya, Connected Discourses of the Buddha, 52nd a collection, yeah, uh, Idipada Sangyutta, Sutta number 13, Immersion Due to Enthusiasm. That sounds quite nice, doesn't it? Immersion Due to Enthusiasm. Immersion being Samadhi, 
And uh, let's see what the Buddha has to say about this. Uh, Mendicants, if a mendicant depends on enthusiasm in order to gain samadhi, to gain unification of mind, this is called immersion due to enthusiasm. They generate enthusiasm, try, make an effort, exert the mind, and strive so that bad, unskillful, unwholesome qualities don't arise. They generate enthusiasm, try, make an effort, exert the mind, and strive so bad, unskillful qualities that have arisen are given up. They generate enthusiasm, try, make an effort, exert the mind, and strive so that the skillful qualities arise. They generate enthusiasm, try, make an effort, exert the mind, and strive so that the skillful qualities that have arisen remain, are not lost, but increase, mature, and are fulfilled by development. These are called active efforts, padana sankara in Pali. And so there is this enthusiasm, this immersion due to enthusiasm, and these active efforts. This is called the basis of psychic power that has immersion due to enthusiasm and active effort. <laughs> so that is the idipada, yeah, and it's, uh, it's kind of... It's it's a bit dry here, the way this is explained, uh, but the main point here, and uh, you will notice, is that you are gaining samadhi based on uh, uh, this thing here called enthusiasm. And enthusiasm in Pali is chanda, and chanda can be translated in different ways. This is Adan Sujato's ways of making chanda a bit less. Uh, um, a bit less problematic because chanda really means desire. Yeah, it's desire to achieve samadhi. So here you have the uh, samadhi due to desire, really, but a wholesome kind of desire, not a kind of a sensual desire, but a desire for wholesome things. Uh, and that is often problematic because, of course, desire is one of the things that we try to subdue as part of the practice to samadhi. And that's why he translates as enthusiasm to make that problem kind of go away a little bit. And I think it's fair enough because uh, enthusiasm tends to bring with it desire. Yeah, When you are enthusiastic about something, you have a bit of desire for it. Uh, and then you have to learn to kind of calm down. Okay, you know, when you first become a Buddhist, you get really excited about Buddhism. Yeah, I, I had a, We had one fellow just staying at the monastery, really. He was so enthusiastic about Buddhism. And he was kind of really over the top. And he couldn't... Well, he, I, can, I think he slept at night. But he was kind of doing everything. Yeah, he was kind of keeping the eight precepts all the time. And he was meditating day in, day out. On top of that, holding down a job and doing everything. So he was kind of... He, and he said after about a year of that, he started to calm down a little bit and become more realistic about the Buddhist path. This is kind of enthusiasm, yeah? You go a bit over the top, and then you calm down your desires a little bit after a while. Uh, and it's the same thing here with immersion and with uh, samadhi. Uh. But in the beginning, you have to have that desire. You have to want to uh, try out the meditation practice. You have to tr want to try to come here and sit down. Uh, at the very least, you have to put your bottom on a on a chair or on a cushion, uh, yeah, so that you actually can uh, watch your breath or whatever. Uh. If you don't do that, you're not going to get anywhere. Uh. So a bit of desire is, is required initially on this Buddhist path. So this here, 
what we're seeing here. There's four idipadas. This is only the first one. And as always in Buddhism, everything is graduated. One builds on the next. One comes first, the next one builds on the first one. So there's always as a gradual, as a progression. So this is the most basic of the idipadas, where you use chanda or use desire to help you achieve samadhi. Later on, you give that up. We will see that in a uh, in a minute, uh, uh, but initially you have to have that desire. Uh, and uh, uh, so don't worry too much if you have a bit of desire. Yeah, sometimes that is, is required to get started. Uh, and then gradually you abandon that uh, as, as a consequence of the practice. And then you have this whole uh, long uh, thing here about generating enthusiasm. And you probably may recognize that. That is the formula for the four right efforts that we did initially. So here the four right efforts are included within these uh, idipadas. So these idipadas are really, they are a method for giving rise to samadhi. And it includes the four right efforts. It includes satipatthana as well, because that also is a kind of part and parcel of all of this. And of course, it includes samadhi. So these are cover the area on the Noble Eightfold Path from right effort, right, right sati, and then right samadhi. This is what these idipadas are about. And they are then uh, different ways of achieving that samadhi, depending on how developed your mind is. If your mind is not very developed, you have to start with chanda and desire. If your mind is more developed, then you use some of the other methods that come further down here. So this is all it is. Yeah, it sounds kind of very. It sounds very mystical when you read this. You wonder what's going on here. But actually, there's nothing really mystical about this at all. It's just the thing that drives the samadhi. And here, the samadhi is driven by enthusiasm and desire and chanda. And later on, it is driven by other things. So. Um, and all the exertion here that is mentioned here, the four right efforts, that's just the, uh, the, the right effort that you apply uh, when you are uh, using the mind to attain samadhi. Yeah? You're sitting there watching the breath. That is one aspect of right effort. So that is the first one. I'm not going to say much more about that because I don't really think it is required. And uh, I'm not really sure exactly what to say anyway. So it's just. Uh, so I think I'm going to leave it at that. And then just move on to the next ones. If a mendicant depends on energy in order to gain immersion or samadhi, to gain unification of mind, this is called uh, samadhi due to energy. And then we have the same four-round efforts again. You generate enthusiasms, try, make an effort, exert the mind, and strive so that the bad, unwholesome qualities don't arise. And then to... Uh, to uh, um, so to uh, give up uh, the bad wholesome qualities and then to develop uh, the wholesome qualities and lastly so that skillful qualities that have arisen remain are not lost but increase mature and are fulfilled by development uh, yeah so the same four again uh, and these are called the active efforts uh, padana sankara uh, uh, or willed efforts, if you like. You're using, the, you're using willpower to some extent to make an effort. And, then so, the, uh, and so there is this energy, the immersion due to energy, and these active efforts. And this is called the basis of psychic power that has immersion due to energy, or samadhi due to energy, an active effort. So this is very similar to the previous one. 
Maybe I should just mention very briefly here that we are talking about samadhi. It also mentions unification of mind, chittasa ekagata. And this is just a synonym for samadhi. It's the idea that the mind being unified, not being distracted. The opposite of samadhi is vikitta chitta. Vikitta means distracted mind, restless, moving here, moving there. The opposite is the mind which is unified. It doesn't move any, anywhere anymore. And it is just steady on the object, whatever that object might be. So just, uh, these are just words that are used to describe samadhi in the suttas. And so here, you, it's based on energy. And what does that mean? Well, it means that I didn't perhaps make this uh, very clear before, but there is an important distinction in the suttas between effort and energy. And effort is when we apply the mind or you apply yourself. Yeah, You try, you use willpower and you kind of try to keep the five precepts or you try to stay on the meditation or whatever it is. That is kind of an active trying on our behalf, or that we, that we do. But energy is a quality of the mind. Yeah, once the mind becomes starts to become peaceful, energy arises in the mind. The mind becomes really feels powerful. It feels energized. There's no sleepiness there at all anymore. It is the opposite of sleepiness. It's like energy. You have energy in the mind, and you don't have to try anymore to give rise to energy you don't have to try it is a natural part of the mind so these are slightly different then yeah padana is where you actually have to try uh, uh, you may or may not have energy in the mind but that's kind of not the point and energy is something is a natural principle that arises in the mind and usually it arises together with joy it arises together with mindfulness these are kind of things that occur in a nexus if you like together joy Energy and mindfulness, they always tend to come together. The joyous mind is energetic. The mindful mind is, has energy. They usually come together. If you really are mindful, that is what happens. So uh, this is a higher level than the previous one. On the previous one, we have to have desire. Yeah, We have to kind of decide to do this. Here, the energy is already there, and all you have to do is use that energy, apply that energy in your meditation, and it's far easier to gain samadhi on this basis because you already have, the foundation is already in place, and now you kind of zoom into your samadhi, bang, and you kind of watch the breath, and everything is so nice by comparison. So it's a different level. It is a higher level of samadhi practice because your mental faculties are already more powerful and it enables you more easily to achieve samadhi. Yeah? This is kind of the point with this. So, um, uh, so that is what that uh, means. Yeah? And um, uh, let us um, move on to the next one. So what what I was what is the takeaway message from this? Well, the takeaway message is that most of us have to use a bit of chanda, a bit of desire. But when your meditation is going really well, you can put that desire away and you can go directly to the energy and apply that energy to the meditation object and then samadhi happens. Yeah, You can put away the desire very early and just kind of apply yourself and just be peaceful from the beginning. That is really the practical takeaway message from this. And then we have, so all of this is quite high development of the mind. It's not uh, that common for people to have heaps of mental energy. But some of, sometimes you may get there during a retreat like this or even at other times. Uh. Then we have the third one. Uh. A mendicant depends on 
mental development in order to gain samadhi, to gain unification of mind. This is called immersion samadhi due to mental development. And then we have the four right efforts again. And then uh, he says, and so there is this mental development, this samadhi due to mental development, and these active efforts. This is called the basis of psychic power that has immersion due to mental development and active effort. So here, mental development means that the mind, this is called chitta idipada, so mind idipada, yeah, so here the mind is already developed to some extent in samadhi. You already have a degree of samadhi already. Sometimes the word chitta is used synonymously in the suttas with the word samadhi because chitta is when the mind kind of, it is the mind and the mind emerges uh, in its own right, when you approach samadhi, that's when the mind comes out. Yeah, This we are talking about before, about the uh, samadhi nimitta, the light in the mind, and these things being roughly equivalent to citta. That happens when samadhi comes about. So the mind is very much, it emerges through the samadhi experience. So mind here means that you already have a degree of samadhi, yeah, and then you apply that samadhi to deepen it even further. That is essentially the meaning of this. So you again, it's even easier than the previous one. You go even further down the path, and so you have more power to generate further samadhi. So whichever one you use just depends on how developed your mind is. And you can see here, we are dealing with people who have developed their mind a long way on the path. Yeah, Someone is maybe on retreat all the time and has that steadiness of samadhi, and then you use that steadiness to take you even further on the path. Um, uh, the basis of psychic power, I should perhaps also say that uh, uh, psychic power here, the Pali word is idi, and it means like it can mean like spiritual power in a more general sense. So it means any kind of power that helps you to develop spiritual qualities, uh, including insight, yeah, not just kind of psychic abilities, uh, but any kind of insight and any uh, ending of the defilements and all of that. Uh, the psychic powers are really just secondary. The ones that really matter are the spiritual powers that kind of drive you forward on the path. So uh, I think psychic power is a little bit misleading perhaps here uh, because it kind of emphasizes something that the Buddha said we should not really emphasize. Anyway, last one. A mendicant depends on inquiry in order to gain immersion, to gain unification of mind. This is called immersion due to inquiry. And then you have the four right efforts again. Uh, and so there is this inquiry, this immersion due to inquiry, and this active efforts. This is called the basis of psychic power that has immersion or samadhi due to inquiry and active effort. So what does this mean? Well, this what this means is that inquiry here is vimangsa. Vimangsa means like investigation or inquiry. And it just means that you uh, remember the Dhamma, you remember impermanence, you remember all of these things, non-self or whatever ever, ever it is. So uh, through that uh, ability, through that profound insight into these teachings, you can let go of things very, very quickly. Yeah, and... Uh, that, so this is really a practice that happens for people who are noble ones, who are Aryas more than anything else. 
until you have this kind of insight, it makes it much more difficult to do this sort of thing. But once you have the full insight into reality, you see the five khandhas for what they are, it is very easy to give things up. Why? Because you understand that these things are suffering. Yeah, we just went through the process of the mindfulness of breathing. You start to see all of that as suffering. And of course, once you really see these things are problematic, you can give it up like that. Because there's no interest in that anymore. It's like that hot plate. Yeah, You don't have to think, should I give it up? You just withdraw your hand straight away because you're touching the hot plate. No, don't want to go there. In the same way, your mind recoils from suffering. Because we don't want suffering. It's as simple as that. We want to be happy here. So this is what insight does. All you have to do is kind of uh, um, move your mind towards that understanding you have, and bang, you go straight into samadhi as a consequence. Uh, and this is what happens with people who are areas. Yeah, you sit down, uh, you close your eyes, the samadhi nimitta comes up, bang, and then you go into jhana, book, like that. Uh, yeah, this is uh, this is what uh, this is kind of how how it works for people who are really skilled in samadhi practice, uh, and it's kind of cool. It's happened so fast. Uh, so sometimes they say that it happens on one in-breath, but it doesn't even happen on one in-breath. You don't need to watch the breath at all. You just samadhi up and baff into samadhi, and then you, you are in business. But that takes that kind of insight, because you have to understand that all of these other things are uh, worthy of being abandoned and given up. So there you are. That is uh, the four idipadas. This is all about uh, samadhi practice. And... Uh, uh, so uh, it is just there for your uh, uh, for your education and for a little bit of insight into how samadhi can be practiced. Uh, I have never really heard of many people who emphasize these idipadas all that much. They are a little bit obscure in the suttas, uh, but really, as long as you're watching the breath and trying to develop samadhi, you are actually practicing these idipadas in one way or another. Uh, so you don't really need to be too concerned about them. Uh. So... Now, what I want to do is look at one more sutta that concerns the Idipadas a little bit. And this is a slightly different kind of sutta. And this is another extract, really, from the Maha Parnibbana Sutta. And uh, this is interesting. It's not directly related to what we're doing here, but it's just. Uh, uh, it, is, it says a little bit about the Idipadas, but not much. But it's generally, just quite, it's generally just an interesting sutta, in my opinion. It has a few elements to it that are kind of worthwhile touching on. And that's why I've taken it in here. So this little extract is taken from the Sangyuta Nikaya again, the connected discourse of the Buddha number 10. And it's called At the Chapala Shrine. And this is also an extract from the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. It's both. There's quite a bit of duplication of suttas in the whole collection. And that's why you find them sometimes twice, just as we do with this one. So this is how it goes. Uh, so, uh, again, the background for this, just to remind you again, this is the Buddha. He is uh, moving uh, towards his final destination at Kushinara, where he's about to pass away. And uh, now we are getting quite close to the final passing away. So remember that as a backdrop to all of this. So, so I have heard, at one time the Buddha was staying near Vesali in the great wood, in the hall with the peaked roof. Then the Buddha robed up in the morning and taking his bowl and robe, entered Vesali for alms. Then, after the meal, on his return from alms round, he addressed Venerable Ananda. 
Ananda, get your sitting cloth. Let's go to the Chapala shrine for the day's abiding. Yes, sir, replied Ananda. Taking his sitting cloth, he followed behind the Buddha. So here we have uh, the Buddha having just finished the uh, rains retreat in Vesali. He's about to depart Vesali. And of course, it's not that long after departing Vesali that he actually arrives in Kushinara. Maybe a few weeks afterwards, but not long afterwards at all. Uh, so uh, here we're getting very close to the Buddha's passing away. And this is kind of what it's, this is setting up here. Uh, and then they go out, and this would be a common thing after the a meal, they would often go to a secluded place and they would go meditating in the forest somewhere. This would be a standard procedure for the monks and the nuns at that time. And uh, uh, so the, for the day's meditation is what they call this. Uh, and here you see them taking the sitting cloth. Yeah, And this is uh, uh, one of those things. Sitting cloth is actually mentioned very rarely in the suttas. Uh, but it's mentioned sometimes on occasions like this, when they go into the forest. Because when you go into the forest, you want to protect your robes, so they don't get dirty or whatever. So you have a sitting cloth. And uh, you may have noticed, I don't actually use a sitting cloth here, because there's not much point, really. I can't really get all that dirty sitting on this seat, so I should be all right. So uh, I sometimes it's just a hassle to have your sitting cloth everywhere, so I, I don't really use it. And in those days, it seems like they used it mostly just to protect the robes when going into the forest. So just to make it clear, just because I'm not using a sitting cloth does not mean I'm a bad monk. Yeah? It's not a, that is not enough to, <laughs> to make that happen. Anyway, so uh, then... Uh, uh, the next thing here that happens then is that then the Buddha went up to the Chapala shrine and sat down on the seat spread out. Ananda bowed to the Buddha and sat down to one side. And the Buddha said to him, Ananda, Visali is lovely. And the Udena, Gotamaka, Satamba, Bahuputta, Sarandada and the Chapala shrines are all lovely. Whoever has developed and cultivated the four bases of spiritual power, made them a vehicle and a basis, kept them up, consolidated them, and properly implemented them, may, if they wish, live on for the eon, or what's left of the eon. So that is, uh, that is already quite uh, Astonishing, yeah. When you when you read that, that's quite an, a remarkable statement. If you have really practiced these four bases of spiritual power, the four idipadas, yeah. If you have really done it fully and completely, and according to this, you can live on for an eon. So is that right? What do you think? Does that make any sense that you can live on for the eon? It's a long time to live on an eon, and. Uh, uh, I, I don't know about you, but to me, it doesn't really make much sense at all. The, you know, we have a physical body after 100 years. It's pretty tired and tired already. It doesn't really want to go on for an eon. It's hard to understand how this can be serious. Maybe if you had a different kind of body, kind of a lighter body, it might be possible. But with an ordinary human physical body, usually you're quite happy to get rid of it after 100 years. You don't want to carry on for another kind of immeasurable time into the future. And you want to ask a question? Coming, coming, coming. All coming, yep. <laughs> so, uh, it's all happening now. 
So the uh, and because it seems very strange, yeah, and it seems very unnatural right, because of that, and the commentary says about this that actually it doesn't really mean an eon; it means the rest of the lifespan. That's what the commentary says, uh, yeah. This is what the commentary says. Uh, but uh, so they can see the commentator felt a bit uneasy about this. Yeah, they weren't quite happy because how is it possible for the physical body to remain for an eon? Uh, but really, the Pali word here is kappa, and kappa does not mean lifespan. Uh, yeah, it doesn't mean the rest of a lifespan. It always means eon in the suttas. Uh, so I think that the uh, uh, the point here, the commentary is actually the reason why they call it lifespan is because they felt uncomfortable about the idea of the body going on for an eon. So they changed the meaning, the usual meaning of eon. Always the meaning of eon is actually, uh, or kappa rather, is eon. So um, this makes it very interesting. What actually, how, how then are we supposed to understand this? What is actually going on here? And uh, one of the things that you find about the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, and this is an extract from that, uh, is that there is a lot of these kind of uh, amazing events, yeah, things that are not really are very difficult to understand from a kind of ordinary and rational perspective, uh, supernormal things that don't really make any sense. Uh, and, uh, and, and this is one of the hallmarks of this particular sutta, the uh, Mahaparinibbana Sutta. And remember, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta is not a sutta in an ordinary way. It is not really a sutta. is usually a particular uh, uh, a, a delivery by the Buddha to a group of monks that are there. Yeah, it's like one kind of connected discourse, if you like. But the Mahaparinibbana Sutta is mostly a narrative. It is mostly made up after the Buddha passed away and put together. And this here is really, I would say, part of that narrative. It is something that is explained afterwards. So when you compare the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the various versions of it, there are three or four versions in Chinese translation, yeah, in ancient Chinese. There is a version, a Sanskrit version of the Sutta. And what you find when you do that comparison is that a lot of these super normal events, uh, they are very different in one version compared to the next one. Uh, in one version, it is not supernormal at all. It is just completely ordinary. Uh, in another one, it is slightly supernormal. In a third one, it is absolutely supernormal. Uh, and you start to wonder, what is going on here? Why are these versions so different? Uh, and of course, the reason why they are different is because uh, a lot of these things were probably added to the narrative quite a while after the Buddha passed away, after the various schools started to diverge into different directions, and it was natural for the monastic community to kind of try to think back and remember what happened. And because they tried to think back and remember what happened, it was quite natural for some of these supernormal things to kind of make uh, enter into the account uh, because they wanted to elevate the Buddha. They wanted to make the Buddha more special. And they probably remembered the Buddha as very special at the same time. Uh, and this is how some of these supernormal things uh, have kind of entered the suttas very often without any basis to it. Uh, yeah, And this is what is I think is happening here as well. I think that the idea of an eon... Uh, I think, first of all, the commentary is not right to call it the lifespan because there is no evidence at all that kappa can ever mean lifespan. I don't know where the commentaries get that from. And Bhikkhu Bodhi was the one who first made that point, that actually the commentaries here are probably wrong. Yeah, They just felt uneasy about this. So why then is it in there? And the reason it is in there is because they wanted the... 
uh, they wanted to kind of make the Buddha more special. He had abilities that are beyond the ordinary, and that is why he is given this possibility of developing these psychic powers or the spiritual powers to the point where the physical body can go on for an eon. And of course, uh, part of this is also the idea that uh, the Buddha is about to pass away, uh, and the commentaries and the later Buddhist tradition, they want to find an explanation for why the Buddha is passing away. Uh, why is the Buddha passing away? And they, again, they probably felt slightly uncomfortable with the idea that the Buddha was just an old person. Uh, he was old, he had a physical body like the rest of us, uh, and he had to die. That's what happens with old bodies, uh, they die. And they weren't really happy with that. The Buddha was special. He was more than the ordinary human beings. You can see here how the, uh, the, the narrative, the later generation, they're starting to lift the Buddha up and make the Buddha into something more than an ordinary human being. We start to see the elevation of the Buddha into becoming more like a god, into become, becoming someone you pray to, something different from the ordinary humanity. And this becomes more and more prominent. The later you go into the Buddhist tradition, it becomes more prominent in the Mahayana tradition as well, where the Buddha becomes very different from uh, the original early Buddha. So this is what is happening here. They're trying to find an explanation for why the Buddha passed away. And the explanation is that the Buddha could have lived on for the eon. And of course, what is happening next here is that Ananda, he uh, he doesn't get the idea that the Buddha could live on for the eon. So he forgets to ask the Buddha, please live on for the eon. So then Ananda gets the blame for the Buddha not living. Yeah. So this becomes the explanation. It's quite neat. Yeah? It's not the Buddha's fault. He didn't die just like anyone else. Ananda's fault because he didn't do things in the right way. Yeah? And this kind of gets you out of jail. Yeah? The jail of the Buddha being an ordinary person. And you kind of create a completely different narrative. Yeah? And... Uh, and it, it, I think it is, I, you know, this is my kind of, I have to admit this is kind of my way of looking at this, uh, but there is some good evidence for that. Uh, some of the things I just mentioned, uh, and also that there is a lot of contradictory uh, information in this sutta. On the one hand, the Buddha says that he is getting older. He says that he is about to die. He has to use his uh, spiritual faculties to keep alive a little bit longer. Yeah? Ananda is worried about him dying. Later on, he talks about his body being really wrinkled and he's kind of stooping and, and he talks about his faculties declining, just like they do when you get old. You can't really see and hear as well as you used to do and all of these kind of things. So Everything points to the natural process of aging that everyone has to go through. And then there is this alternative narrative where he can live on for the eon. And the two don't match very well. There's many things kind of being a bit contradictory in this particular sutta. So again, it is just my preference uh, to make the Buddha, into, uh, to read the, see the Buddha as an ordinary person. Uh, and this is, uh, I think, one of the things that comes out of the suttas uh, when you read them carefully. Uh, uh, that his mind was different, uh, but certainly his physical body was no different from anyone else. So there you are. So now let's have a look at, uh, let us continue this a little bit. Yeah, The Buddha says he could live on for the eon. Uh, and uh, uh, then he says to another, the realized one, in other words, the Buddha, has developed and cultivated these four uh, foundations of spiritual power. He has made them a vehicle and a basis kept them up, consolidated them, and properly implemented them. If he wishes, the realized one could live on for an eon, or for what's left on the eon.
Hint, hint, yeah? If he wished, he could live on for the eon. Okay, Ananda, say something. Ask, yeah? Now is your opportunity. And if you don't ask, well, who knows what's going to happen next? But Anana didn't get it. Even though the Buddha dropped such an obvious hint, such a clear sign, he didn't beg the Buddha, Sir, may the Blessed One please remain for the eon. May the Holy One please remain for the eon. That would be for the welfare and happiness of people, for the benefit, welfare and happiness of gods and humans. For his mind was as if possessed by Mara. As if, I think the Pali says, it was possessed by Mara. So it is a very curious kind of thing, isn't it? That Ananda doesn't get it. And because Ananda doesn't get it, then the Buddha doesn't live on for the eon. As if he's leaving it up to Ananda to decide whether he's going to live on for the eon or not. And if, Ma- if Ananda's mind was possessed by Mara, then surely the Buddha would have known that. Yeah, he would have known that it wasn't ready. The whole thing is very, very strange. And that's why I I cannot really take it too seriously. This is this is my problem with this. And I and I think when it comes to the suttas, uh, we have to be sometimes we have to be try to read through some of the ancient traditions that were added and trying to see them in a more clear light. Because uh, uh, frankly, uh, the Buddha himself self says that in the suttas, he says that uh, oral tradition can be handed down well, it can be handed down badly. Sometimes it is important that we actually look at these things carefully and don't just allow us to be blinded by things that are not really don't really make any sense. And uh, so I for me it is far more rational to think that the Buddha himself would have decided when he wanted to die and not left it to Mara and Ananda to make that decision. <coughs> so uh, for a second time, for a third time but Ananda still didn't get it, for his mind was possessed by Mara. Then the Buddha said to him, Go now, Ananda, at your convenience. Yes, sir, replied Ananda. He rose from his seat, bowed and respectfully circled the Buddha, keeping him on his right, before sitting down at the root of a tree close by. Um. Okay. Shall we finish this? Is that uh, makes makes sense, or should we stop there? Here, I'll I'll finish. I'll I'll do it fairly quickly. It's, it's not that much to go. It's nice to finish this suit as a little bit. Maybe a few minutes over, but it shouldn't take too long here. Then, not long after Ananda had left, Mara, the wicked one, went up to the Buddha and said to him, "Sir, may the blessed one now become fully extinguished." May the Holy One now become fully extinguished. Now is the time for the Buddha to become fully extinguished. Sir, you once made this statement. Wicked One, I will not become fully extinguished until I have monk disciples, nun disciples, laymen disciples, and laywomen disciples who are competent, educated, assured, learned, have memorized the teachings, and practice in line with the teachings. Not until they practice properly, living in line with the teachings. Not until they have learned the teacher's doctrine and explain, teach, assert, establish, disclose, analyze and make it clear. Not until they can legitimately and completely refute the doctrines of others that come up and teach with a demonstrable basis. 
Today you do have such disciples. May the Blessed One now become fully extinguished. May the Holy One now become fully extinguished. Uh, uh, now is the time for the Buddha to become fully extinguished. When this was said, the Buddha said, said to Mara, relax, wicked one. <laughs> this is Ajahn Sujato's translation. Yeah, so it's kind of nice and colloquial. It's that re- relax, okay? Take it easy. The final extinguishment of the realized one will be soon. Three months from now, the realized one will finally be extinguished. So as you can see, it leaves it up to Mara and Ananda to decide on his final extinguishment, which is not really all that persuasive in my opinion. But um, what is interesting about this, one of the things that reasons why I read this out as well, is because you will notice that what Mara says there, he says that the Buddha is supposed to have said yeah, that not until I have monk disciples, uh, non-disciples, uh, uh, and uh, lay women and lay men disciples uh, who have all of these qualities. Uh, and of course, those qualities are really a comprehensive understanding of the Dhamma, yeah? uh, being able to analyze it, make it clear, teach it to others, and all of these kind of things. Uh, and uh, there's a number of things that is interesting about this, but uh, one of the things is that this particular statement by the Buddha goes back all the way to the very beginning of the Buddha's dispensation. It is found elsewhere, and the Buddha is supposed to have said this straight after his awakening. And what that means, if that is correct, is that from the very beginning, the Buddha really had decided already to have nuns, yeah, bhikkhunis. That seems to have been part from the very, very starting point. And not only is this an evidence of that? The Buddha also is supposed to have four great dreams about uh, uh, the development of the Sangha and the development of Buddhism after his awakening. And those great dreams also included bhikkhunis yeah, in, the, uh, in the development of the sasana. So it's, there is a bit of contradictory information in the suttas because later on when the nuns were supposed to be ordained, the Buddha seems to have been reluctant. So what is it? Was he reluctant or did he actually want nuns to be ordained. And uh, so we have to try to unify this somehow. And some of the most interesting research that has been done, comparative research uh, on uh, the uh, origin of the bhikkhuni lineage, uh, it points to the fact that the reason why the Buddha was reluctant when Mahapajapati Gautami came and asked for ordination was not because he was afraid of the sasana declining or whatever. It was more to do with concern that the women at that time would be properly protected. There wasn't any established system for the women. They didn't have any huts yet. There was nothing. They didn't have any support. And it was much more dangerous for women at that time to live just in the forest like that. And later on the Buddha actually prohibited them from living in the forest because it was considered too dangerous. So that seems to have been the reason why the Buddha was reluctant, not because he actually wanted to stop to give women the possibility to go forth. And that fits with what we're seeing here, because here we, it seems to be fairly clear that the Buddha wanted to give women, women this opportunity from the very start. So in this way, you start to get a different picture of what is going on. And... Um, Anyway, it is rather strange that the Buddha should say that uh, after having allowed Mahapajapati and the nuns to go forth, uh, the next thing he says is that, well, now the uh, kind of sasana will be declined. It will only be for 500 years. It used to be for, for 1,000 years. Uh, it is as if he's undermining his nuns straight away. He has barely ordained them uh, and straight away undermining them. Uh, 
Uh, but regardless, he obviously thought it was worthwhile ordaining them regardless of the consequence, regardless of what that might be. Uh, and this here points in the same direction. Yeah. So uh, this is a very different way of looking at the bhikkhunis. Uh, and uh, it's fairly, it seems clear to me anyway uh, that the Buddha had intended to establish bhikkhunis from the very beginning. Uh, once he started to ordain monks, because uh, then the nuns were not far behind uh, so this is the first thing that is interesting about this. And the other thing that is interesting about this is that here the Buddha says that uh, not only monks and nuns, but also lay men and lay women should also be teachers. Uh, yeah, He talks here about them being uh, uh, able to analyze and understand the Dhamma to basically the same kind of level. Uh, and sometimes in the Buddhist world we have kind of too much hierarchy, perhaps. Yeah, do we really need all of this hierarchy sometimes? Uh, and it is perfectly okay for uh, lay people also to be teachers sometimes, uh, especially for those who have a very good understanding of the Dhamma. And it reminds me of one of those nice little suttas, this nice little sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya, uh, where there is one of the very famous uh, uh, lay Men at that time were supposed to be an anagami, non-return. He was almost fully enlightened. Uga, Uga the householder. And Uga the householder, he would always invite monks to his house. Even though he was an anagami, he was fully enlightened. He would still invite the monks yeah, to support the sangha or whatever. And then when the monks come to, came to his house, he would ask them to please give a teaching. Yeah. And if the monks didn't want to give a teaching, then he would give the monks a teaching. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's kind of nice, isn't it? Uh, it kind of turns things a little bit upside down. And this is kind of uh, what you see. And uh, uh, so things are sometimes a bit different from what we think they should be. Uh, and sometimes that can be a bit liberating when we see things in, a, in different ways. Uh. Anyway, I'm going to stop there. So please continue enjoying yourself. Uh, and then we will see you back again at, uh, what is it, 7.30 this evening here. Yeah.